This is May It Please the Internet, a podcast brought to you by Revision Legal, lawyers who represent businesses that make money online. Hey everyone, this is John DiGiacomo and you are listening to the Revision Legal May It Please the Internet podcast. And I am joined by my business partner, Eric Mysterovich. Eric, how are you? I'm doing great, John. How are you? I'm good. We're rolling into Thanksgiving. And so we thought we'd talk a little bit about what kind of things you need to be thinking about as a seven-figure e-commerce store when it comes to legal spend and legal structure. Eric, I'll let you get us started on this. And let's talk about what it is that somebody who owns a seven-figure e-commerce store should be thinking about? Yeah, we thought, you know, the holidays coming up, it's not only a time to be grateful if you have a seven-figure store, but also a time to look back at the year, make plans for things you want to accomplish either for the last couple of months or rolling into the next year. And a lot of times there's kind of lingering legal issues that I should do that. It's been on my list. And we thought it was a good time to kind of talk about what we see like mature businesses that are prepared and organized. And not every business has all of these things, but we thought it'd be nice just to give you a list of things we think are important, things we see people make mistakes. And we'll touch on organizational structure and IP and contracts and employee issues and all kinds of stuff like that. So Eric, we get the question a lot from a startup about what they should be thinking about for legal. And a lot of times the answer is not much. Why is that? Why do we usually say, "Mm, it's probably not the right time to start thinking about this stuff? Because they have no money. (laughs) (laughs) Like you're a startup, you don't have any money. I mean, it depends. We all have a different definition of what a startup is. I mean, there can be venture-backed startups. And of course, they'll have a lot of legal paperwork and organization. But for a lot of people that are starting new online stores, whatever, they're not going to devote the limited amount of resources they have to, I don't know, you could almost call them luxuries. They're going to do the bare minimum, which is probably incorporate a business entity and get some kind of agreement in writing between the owners as to who owns what. And then after that, they should do a lot of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode. But the reality is their money is probably better spent in other places to get the business up and running. Yeah, I agree entirely. And I have seen a number of startups come to us and have these grand schemes about what needs to be done from a legal perspective. I had one recently that reached out and wanted to talk about transfer pricing. And they didn't have any money to even get an operating agreement, but they wanted to talk about transfer pricing as if there was going to be some huge tax savings from some unique strategy that we were going to be able to provide. And these are just not real things. It's really just very simple. You need certain things. They should be in place. And as your business scales, you're going to need more things. And those things should be in place. There's nothing magical about this process. So it's always more interesting to open the hood on a business that has been around for a while, because what you need changes if you've been around for three to five to 10 years. And like you said, what can be considered a luxury for a startup can become an absolute need for something that's more mature, a business that is more mature. But like any business, no business is really perfect. And ours is exactly like this. We have things on our list that we should do that we haven't gotten to yet, even though we're attorneys. And it just happens. You get busy and you start thinking about making money and keeping payroll going and you just forget. 
But now's the time. It's the end of the year. Like you said, it's a good time to kind of pull out that list and think through it, just like you would think through what you need to buy for your family for Thanksgiving and make sure that you've got enough food for your vegan sister. <laughs> yep. There's easy things to do. I mean, some of these just take a little bit of effort and you kind of feel better that they're done. Not something that's you're going to come back and look at, not something that may immediately make you money, but it kind of checks the box on things that you really should have in place. And you came up with this list of things that you should be able to answer clearly without having to resort to anything else. So what do you think are those things? What things should a business owner in the seven-figure range be able to answer quickly and clearly? The first area is around the organizational structure and, and ownership of the business itself. That means you have a corporation or a limited liability company. You have governing documents. You know where those documents are. Those documents are signed and you know what they mean. And that means what happens if a owner in the business dies or what if they're married now, but they're going through a divorce? How does that change, if at all, your business or the ownership of it? What happens if someone wants to be bought out or buy you out? Is there an agreement on how to do that? Maybe you agreed to one a long time ago. Maybe the business is a lot more valuable now and it makes sense to revisit how that would be calculated. There's all kinds of things in those, you know, you may do the right thing and get organized early, but by year 10, maybe those early versions are just completely out of date and don't match with your reality now. So understanding and being able to answer who is on my cap table, how do the shares transfer between members, can they sell to a third party? And what happens if someone dies or gets divorced? Those are questions I think you should be able to answer. Yeah. And again, this is just a function of doing business. I'll give you a good example. A couple of years ago, our accountant came to us and he said, hey, I need to take a look at your operating agreement. And we provided it to him and he said, oh, hey, by the way, this is completely wrong. You're an S-Corp. Why do you have this operating agreement still that is structured for a partnership? And you and I know better, 100% know better. We do this every day of the week, and yet we still hadn't done it for ourselves. So it's important to regularly take a look back and think through what is it that I need to control for now that things have changed. Again, kids. You had kids earlier than I did, but I had kids. And then I thought, well, you know, we need to think through key man insurance and how to protect against the death of one of us in our business because our families need to be provided for on the untimely death of one of the founders. Yeah. So we have to think through this stuff and look at it regularly. Let's talk more specifically about contracts. If you're a seven figure business, what kind of contracts should you be thinking about and have readily available within your business? Probably a lot of them. There's a lot of different areas. And if you're doing things how we would like to see them, Things are in writing, they're signed contracts, they're organized, they're saved, you know where they are, you know how to get questions answered from those contracts. But I think the first place to start is really who's working for you. Do you have employment agreements or independent contractor agreements in place? These may seem like, oh, those agreements, they're my employee, they're a contractor, they work for me. But there's a lot of really important stuff that can go into there, especially if you're ever going to sell your business. You're going to get questions about whether or not 
key employees have non-compete provisions. They're going to want to see confidentiality agreements between you, your company, and all of your employees or contractors. You're going to want to be over the top in that you, the employer, owns everything that the employee or contractor is creating, especially sensitive with contractors. We've covered this a few times now, but this work for hire language that is in contractor agreements is vitally important to make sure that any copyright rights vest with the employer rather than the contractor. This is the easiest fix for the most value you can get as a business. Look at your independent contractor agreements, make sure they have work for hire language, and make sure you're even your employment agreements. It's less important there, but there's no reason not to have that level of protection. Yeah. You and I spoke today about an issue that we're facing with a client where our client is the buyer of a business and the business that our client is buying utilizes a software developer, a contractor. And as the buyer, we want to ensure that the developer is not going off and working for one of our competitors. We want the developer out of the business. And it's hard for you to do that as a buyer because the developer is not a contractor of yours. He is a contractor of the seller. So the problem becomes, how does the seller go back to the developer and ask that developer to sign a non-compete or to sign a work made for hire or assignment provision or clause once the developer knows a big deal or a big sale is happening? And the answer is often by paying them more money by securing their signature, by paying them more money. So these are things that have to be done earlier. You can't wait until your business sells to do this. It becomes a huge problem for everyone involved. I think it's also like they need to be done earlier, but these are things maybe you didn't do on day one. Maybe you did not have everyone that works for you sign it on compete on day one. But if you're in year three, four, or five, and these are important people in the business, non-competes, I think there's some hesitation to like force employees to sign non-competes. Oh, and that makes sense. You don't want to have, I don't know, maybe you don't want to be overbearing. Last thing you want to do is start a lawsuit, but it's really important to have the option of that lawsuit. Like maybe you don't have to file it, but it gives you some leverage, some level of protection over your business that it really deserves at this point. It's not, I don't think a luxury I don't think it's being overbearing. It's in the best interest of the business to have key people under non-compete agreements because if they're not, they can work for a direct competitor and that's not good for you. <laughs> and so I think it's people really should not be afraid of this. It doesn't mean you have to go around suing everyone, but if you don't have this, you don't have the option to do it at all. Absolutely. It's like the one fell off of the truck problem, right? Where the, your former employee who's not subject to a non-compete goes to a competitor and though they're under some duty of confidentiality, do you really think they are going to adhere to that duty? Maybe they will. Maybe they're the angels. But at the same time, do you really want to take that risk? No, you probably don't. You don't. And like, if we think about what is the attorney's job that we're forced into in that kind of situation, I would much rather have to prove an employee is violated non-compete agreement and that the agreement was valid and that it protect a legitimate business interest and that the new position is in fact competing according to the agreement 
rather than trying to prove they breached a confidentiality provision, which becomes much more complicated. What is the information? Is it really confidential? Did you, the employer, treat it as confidential? Did they really use it? Is it public knowledge? This is just dollar signs in attorney fees. So like the non-compete just simplifies the whole situation for you as the employer. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about incentive agreements. So we see a lot of clients that have adopted phantom stock agreements or other incentive agreements, perhaps bonuses. Really, you have to think through these as well. I mean, you have to revisit them and understand what is the risk associated with the vesting timeline or, you know, on exit, what are your duties? Do you have to sell? What did you want to say about phantom stock, Eric? You wanted to say like... Just that people like... If they're have been in business for a while, maybe it's a good time to think about entering into one of these. If they already have one, make sure they know what the hell it says. Let's move on to employee incentive agreements. Now we see frequently bonus incentives. We also see phantom stock incentive agreements. Eric, what should employers be looking for when you're a seven figure store owner, when it comes to incentivizing employees? If you've reached that level and you've been around for some time, you probably have some people you really trust that you work with and you probably pay them well, but they're still an employee and, and they could leave at any time. There could be new opportunities They could do whatever, but it might really hurt your business to lose someone that's, that's truly valuable. And that's the time to start thinking about what kind of other benefits can we provide to incentivize people to keep doing a good job? And phantom stock is a really good option where they're really flexible plans. You can create any kind of terms you want. You can agree to pay them regular distributions, like instead of the owner getting 100% of a distribution, maybe they get 5% of each distribution. Or you could have it where they only get money if the business is sold and they would get 5% of the sale proceeds. It's a really nice option. It shows appreciation. It shows appreciation through money, which is ultimately what counts. And, you know, it's something when you've been around for a while and you have important people to maybe consider um, looking at how that could help. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Another area that I think is worth looking at is your service agreement. Let's assume that you're a software as a service provider or you're some other service provider. How do you get paid? You get paid by virtue of that contract. So it makes sense to review it, to make sure that you can get paid, to make sure that it's still in force. Recently, we did a M&A deal where you know, we came in and we looked at all the agreements and they had all been expired. So our client that was the buyer was obviously concerned that none of the existing contractual agreements with the customers of the business that they were going to buy were valid. And it's important to revisit those. If you're not confident in the piece of paper that gets you paid, you are doing something wrong. You should feel extremely confident that your contract will get you paid, that you can enforce it, that it has attorney fee provisions in there. So if you do have to enforce it, they have to pay your attorney fees. Not that you have to file lawsuits again, but it gives you that leverage, gives you an ability to kind of have a leg up in the negotiations and to make sure it it solves the problems i mean when i'm retained to draft an agreement like that the first question i ask is what are the pain points what problems do you have in your sales process or dealing with your customers 
that we can try to solve in the contract. And revisiting that, the problems change over time, and you have to go back and look at that and tighten it up and brush it up. Yeah, and the same is true even with traditional e-commerce. Terms of use agreement. What controls the shipping and selling of goods to your customers? It's the terms of use agreement. So revisit it. It needs to be a real thing. It shouldn't be one that you got off of a website. You shouldn't do it yourself. It's going to outline things like your warranty policy. And warranty is not a big deal until somebody gets hurt and you've got an injury that you have to deal with when a personal injury attorney sues you. Privacy policy, same thing. If you are going to sell your business, privacy policy becomes a key component of selling that business. There are state-level laws that now apply in many states, Colorado, Nevada, California. All of these things have to be addressed in a privacy policy, and they can be real sticking points if you want to eventually sell your business as well. Copyright policy is the same thing, making sure you've got a copyright registered agent. And then your underlying wholesaler or manufacturer agreements. If you're buying products in China and you're having them shipped over to the United States and you don't have an agreement, you're absolutely insane. That needs to be papered today. Yeah, that becomes a concern very quickly in a lot of deals as to what kind of protections are there? How do we know the manufacturer is not making the same thing and selling it to someone else or selling it themselves? It can be tricky. There can be some delicate negotiations, but it's worth it to solidify that. Again, especially if you ever have a plan of exiting, which I think most people do. These are all questions you're going to have to answer at some point. You might as well get comfortable with the answers now and work to get them in the best shape you can. Yeah, agreed. Same with insurance. You should review your insurance policies yearly. Look at workers' comp if you have employees in multiple states. That's going to be an issue. Personal property insurance, key man insurance, health insurance, data privacy, and cybersecurity insurance. Huge deal. If you have a data breach or if you are subject to some kind of data theft or one of those phishing schemes that encrypts your hard drive, it's a big deal. You need to have coverage for it. Again, this is going to be a rep and warranty in the asset purchase agreement that you had adequate insurance. It was always valid. There were no lapses. You're going to have to say yes to that. So you might as well get on the ball now and make sure that's all true. Intellectual property, trademarks. Make sure you've registered federal trademarks for any of your brands. Make sure that before you buy a new domain name or roll out a new product, you've run a clearance search. Make sure that your entities are correct on your trademark registrations. If you are selling in Europe, you got to have international trademarks. It's a first to file system. So you can't just wait until the day that somebody asks you about it. You need to do it as soon as you think about it. Yeah, this is another one where day one, are you thinking about registering for a trademark in China? You're not. But if this is working and this is a real business, it's time to expand your IP protections and to look into Europe, look into the countries that you're selling into and go because, as we all know, trademark is very tricky and you can run into problems. So you might as well know those problems now and adjust for them. And maybe that changes what countries you want to focus on. But Having one U.S. trademark registration is not checking the box. If you're running a large e-commerce business, you probably have more than one trademark that should be protected, and you're probably selling into more than one country, and your business is going to be more attractive to buyers 
if you are buttoned up across the board and across the world. Same is true for copyright and patent. Copyright product shots. If you're an e-commerce store owner and you haven't filed for copyright registration of your product shots and then your competitor is ripping you off, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem on sale because the value of the shots are effectively worthless because somebody else has taken them and is currently using them. It's going to be a problem from an SEO perspective if your copy is being copied and used. So it's important, again, to get that part of your site buttoned up. And then patent, if you're selling a product that could be subject to a design or utility patent, it's important to get that done as well. And knowing when and what is patentable is key because patents are very expensive. So getting some basic patent education and kind of understanding when and how patents should be filed and for what reasons, and then the cost associated to file and the cost associated with enforcement is really key. And then again, having those employee agreements and those independent contractor agreements in place with your employees to make sure that you have the right to file for any inventions that are patentable as a result of their work is also important as well. Copyright and patent are maybe things people don't think of. I think people probably go for trademark first. It's a little more easily understandable. The processes make more sense. It's a brand. We're protecting it. Okay, great. Copyright, I feel like copyright registration, it's so easy. It's relatively inexpensive. I mean, talking about under $1,000 for sure, depending on what you're filing. And you can really have some like secret powers with a copyright registration. I mean, if you have people that are ripping off the copy on your website, even your product description on an Amazon page, those bullet points, having a registered copyright in place before that infringement you really have a leg up to bully around the person that is copying you. And without that, you don't. I mean, it is a massive swing in leverage and whether or not you have a copyright registration prior to infringement. And that's because if you do, you can obtain statutory damages in a lawsuit of, you know, $100,000 per infringement. And it's not, again, not that you're going to go sue everyone, but it's that you have the ability to do it. And you have this leverage over them that you only get by having that registration. Registration is easy. It's painless. You're almost guaranteed to get it. It's not like trademark where there's a big clearance search and conflicting marks and things like that. It's relatively easy. And so yeah, product shots, videos, text of your website, even your website as a whole. Easy protections that if something comes up, you'll be surprised at how much leverage you really do have with a copyright registration. Yeah. And maybe attorney will take your case contingent fee. Um, you know, you had said a hundred thousand is 150 and correcting you there. Yeah. Sorry. You were, thinking of, you were thinking of domain names. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. But 150k is a big deal. I mean, I'll take a portion of 150k if you want to give me a call and we'll do a product shot or a product description case. It is a big deal, especially if you got three product shots, you got separate registrations on each, it's 150 each. It's not total. Yeah. So it it's a huge incentive and I don't think people really understand that. I always tell clients register your website content quarterly because there's some rules that I won't talk about right now that provide you with the maximum advantage if you do that. So that's what you should plan for and, and calendar it. It's not expensive. It's really easy to plan into your your life and your budget. So get it done. Now, we should be able to also talk about as business owners, trade secrets. 
What are trade secrets, Eric? Trade secrets, really important to understand the basics of it. And I think once people do know the basics, you can feel pretty comfortable with it. So it's a form of IP protection, but it's not registered. You don't go to a government authority to get a certificate that this is a trade secret. Instead, a trade secret is defined by what it is and how you maintain it. So a trade secret is a pattern, a formula, a calculation that has value to your business and that you take reasonable measures to keep secret. The easiest way to think about this is if you have some kind of competitive advantage over your competitors that you keep secret, that's probably a trade secret, right? It could be a whole host of things, but it creates value to the business and you maintain or take reasonable measures to maintain its secrecy. And John, that's probably where we see most people screw up is how to maintain it being secret, right? Yeah. I mean, keep your wholesale prices on a need to know basis. Don't be sharing your top secret pricing information or your product development information or the secret sauce with somebody that doesn't need to know. That's really the easiest way to describe a trade secret. The recipe for Coca-Cola is one of the classic trade secrets in IP law. Think about things within your business that have that level of importance and keep them away from people who might run away with them. And that's all it takes. It's a very basic form of protection. It's one that can be protected for $0 as long as you take reasonable measures. It's something that you should absolutely be thinking about and you should do. And you should take an inventory or an assessment of what is a trade secret within your business and then establish physical and non-physical access controls to protect against the disclosure of that secret. Yeah. I mean, when we were talking about employees earlier and non-competes, I mean, if one of your key employees left, what would you not want them to take with them, <laughs> right? Like, what would you be like, oh, shit, they know this. They're going to bring that to a competitor. That's probably your trade secret. And there can be a bunch of them. It could, like you said, it could be customer lists, sales pricing. It's really endless what it can be. But yeah, it's taking reasonable measures. Don't have it in a folder that is password protected and that password's only given out to certain people. Like that alone, like your interns can't access your trade secret. That is a mark in your favor that you've taken a reasonable measure to protect it. You know, if you're engaged in potential sales, you have NDAs in place. That again is a check in your favor. You tell your employees, this is a trade secret. We consider this to be confidential. That alone is a check in the column that yes, this is a trade secret and you've taken a reasonable measure. It's that what would make you sick to your stomach that someone's going to take with them. And now what are you doing to make sure that's truly a secret? Pretty low cost to do like the measures doesn't mean you have to be spending a ton of money to keep it secret. You just have to take it a reasonable measure for your business. If you're a fortune 500 company, the reasonable measure is going to be a higher standard than if you're a six-person e-commerce store. Yeah, doing nothing is not a reasonable measure under any circumstance. So that's the key. Make sure that you do something that's proportional to the amount of money that you make as a business. Now, let's talk about a couple other things in IP. You should know 
when you have received or when you've sent cases of IP infringement. So if you sent a demand letter, or you've received a demand letter, or you've received notices because of your Amazon listings, whatever it might be, you should have those documented and saved somewhere because those are going to be key for the purposes of due diligence if you ever sell your business. They're going to be key for insurance providers when they need to assess whether they should cover a claim. So it's important to make sure that you have those things safely saved somewhere. Knowing where you could invest more in IP protection, so kind of having a roadmap about what it is that in the future, if you have more money, you're going to do to protect yourself and to protect your brand or your patents or your products in a better way. That's important. And then making sure that your domain portfolio is locked down and making sure that you have defensive registrations in place is key too, because things like typo squatting, where somebody registers your domain name with a few letters off, let's say instead of an A, they have a Q. That's key because you could be targeted for phishing. You could be targeted for invoicing scams or payment scams. Or somebody could just post a bunch of negative stuff about you on a gripe site and you want to be the person who controls those domains. So going out and registering your, you know, dot sucks domain or revisionlegalsucks.com, whatever it might be, that's key. If you can control them, then you can avoid the risks associated with third party actions. I mean, it's a bit of a balancing act. You're not going to spend an obscene amount of money in domain registrations, but there's probably some low-hanging fruit where there's misspellings or duplicate letters. I would expect most businesses to have 10 plus domain registrations to try to avoid these problems. Like you said, you're in control of it. If you pay that 10, 12 bucks a year, of course, if someone does these bad things, there's ways to get those domains back and stop them. But they're a lot more expensive and they're not certain either. So what does your domain portfolio look like? When do your domains expire? Are they on auto pay? Did your credit card expire? Like check your domain names, right? Like go do it now, log in, take a look at them, see what's there, make sure they're okay and see what you can add to it. It's an easy fix for low cost. The final category that we should talk about is taxes and accounting. Now, Understanding your tax structure and having a good tax plan is key because no one wants to pay more taxes than they have to. That's something that we did really early on. And thankfully, after being hit with end of the year taxes that we weren't expecting after a number of years, we found a trusted CPA. Having a trusted CPA is paramount. If you can't trust your CPA, then you're going to have major, major problems in business. And then making sure you do all your quarterly payments in advance to make sure that you have a handle on what your year-end liabilities are. Those are all going to be key, as well as taking advantage of tax laws and expenses and depreciation and deductions where you can. Things like business cars and some cases people like to pay their spouses or their kids for things or making sure you're maximizing your 401k. But you don't want to be shady, right, Eric? You want to make sure that you're acting within the law. You certainly don't want an audit, but you should take advantage of the fact that there are opportunities to reduce your taxable income and to protect yourself from paying too much in taxes. Everyone's going to have a different comfort level with how they want to approach it. I think the point that we're trying to stress is that taxes shouldn't be a surprise. Like how much money you have to pay 
should not be a surprise. If you're consistently surprised with your tax bill, now it's always a little disappointing <laughs> if your tax bill is high, but that means you had a good year. But like planning for it and being able to pay it, like no questions asked and having it not be a concern whatsoever is where you should be a few years, really should be year one into business. But I think there is a learning curve. It takes time. Maybe you change CPAs a couple of times. I mean, we certainly did. And we certainly had some surprises here and there. And now we've solved that. And we have a better plan now. And the surprises aren't as surprising anymore, I guess, right? Like there's still things that come up and, oh, this is more than I expected. But there's always a plan that's very conservative in place to make sure all of that is covered. And really is a big stress reduction too, just knowing that you are planning for it and taken care of. Yeah. And having an advisor that can speak to you in a language that makes sense is key as well. I just want to give a shout out to our accountant, Mario Lucibello, who is at Greenhouse Reardon in Milford, Connecticut. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, the, I, you are my ride or die because there were so many years early on in our business where we were surprised. And I remember getting to the end of the year and just having these like moments of complete and utter stress, just thinking like, what the hell is going to happen this year? And it wasn't just like we were using some local nobody. We were using major, major tax forms, like some of the big guys paying 400 plus an hour, and yet we still weren't getting it done right. So if you are not happy, find somebody that can solve this problem for you. This is a problem that should be solved very easily. Yep, absolutely. Hopefully we'll have Mario on sometime, give some advice out. Yeah, that's a great idea. And then finally, clean books. Make sure your books are clean. Make sure they're done correctly. Don't wait until the last minute. Don't, if you can avoid it, don't do them yourself. We did that for so many years. It was such a nightmare. Make sure that you have clean books. You can run a PL and balance sheet without any question. You've got ready access and insight into your finances. And when it's time to expand, you know, and when it's time to maybe get rid of some employees, you know that as well. It's key to make sure that all of that data is in the right place and easily accessible. Yep. And again, if you're going to exit, if you're going to sell, those books are going to be dissected. And so they need to be right. And you're going to look a lot better. And the deal is going to close faster if your books are right. And time kills deals. Get your books in order. Don't make those the delay and got a better chance of getting to closing. Well, thanks, Eric. I think this has been very helpful. We really appreciate all of you listening. Again, this is the May It Please the Internet podcast. We are Revision Legal, and we will speak to you next time. 